Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Spartan Speak, a podcast from the Lansing State Journal and Detroit Free Press focused on Michigan State sports. I'm Phil Friend, your host, podcast producer, and sports writer for the LSJ, joined by free beat writer Chris Solari and LSJ sports columnist Graham Couch. Gentlemen, in the times of COVID-19, we're just gonna, we have already had a bunch of weird weeks regarding sports and sports scheduling and games playing and games not playing, and we're kind of in this spot once again this week in the lead up to Michigan State's football game with Ohio State, and that comes with a mix of what a pretty big win for the Michigan State basketball program and uh, beating Duke earlier this week. So we've got we've got a lot to talk about this week. Yeah, very very big week, very interesting week. You know, three basketball games in one weekend, and a basketball game that I think, um, you know, I, I think was I think the Notre Dame game was telling. I think the the Duke game was confirming and uh, of what we, we we thought we saw. I don't know about you, Chris. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways there there was uh, confirmation that that the depth is real. That I think the talent is there, and and more importantly that 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 this team can really play with anybody in the country. Okay, before we get too far into our discussion about the Michigan State Duke basketball game, I want to run down what we're going to talk about in today's podcast. After the basketball discussion, we are going to talk a little football and what appears to be at the moment their game Saturday against Ohio State, but that will always be subject to change. And then at the Lansing State Journal's Nate Atkins will join me for a discussion about the Buckeyes and we'll kind of break down what Michigan State can do offensively and defensively to beat the Buckeyes. All right, on to the basketball. Yeah, it was a, a very commanding performance. I think the thing that was most interesting about that game that it played out exactly like the Notre Dame game, where uh, the Michigan State had a twenty-six to zero run at the end of the first half and beginning of the second half, and then against Duke in the very similar time span, it was twenty-seven to seven. So uh, this is a team that's shown they can turn it and can turn it on when it needs to, and if they seize an opportunity to kind of stump on the neck, if you will, uh, they can do that, and that just gives another level to this team that maybe we didn't think that they were going to hit, they were going to have early in the season. Maybe we thought that, but maybe at least nationally, I don't think that was the, uh, that's what everybody was seeing. I mean, I was intrigued by this team from the start, but it, but it is fascinating how quickly it's come together and, and how well they fit and how just overwhelming they can be athletically. And, and it's, it's kind of, um, I mean, it's really out of development. I mean, obviously Hauser and, and, and Langford are big additions and Hauser may be their best player, or at least in that conversation. It's one of their, couple marquee guys and that's a huge addition um but if, if you look at what they lost last year with tillman and, and winston i mean these are like all-time greats at msu especially winston and to be a stronger uh team right now i'm not saying this team would beat that team if they played today but uh, there, there's this team would but the, i mean the best way to look at this is last year's michigan state team lost on us on a, a road game in purdue in january 71 to 42 this team could play that purdue team Four million times, it would never lose seventy-one to forty-two, and that's the best way to describe that in terms of stealing and athleticism. And it's just development of that sophomore and junior class, 
and where they are. And it starts with Aaron Henry and Hauser and that flexibility those two give them. Obviously, Watts, but, but a guy like Foster Lawyer who fits, right? He's a great complement to Rocket Watts because Rocket Watts can be out of sorts at times. And, and, and what you saw lawyer, for Lawyer, this game was, I think, a truth-telling game, a revealing game of his ability to play at that level. Uh, the development of a guy like uh, Julius Marble. I, I just, I think all across the board, that those two classes, Chris, have really um, developed and, and and quickly and allowed a team that, um, I mean, to come together like this really quickly and be an overwhelming, maybe matchup-proof type of team. Yeah, I think that uh, the one constant we've seen is Aaron Henry. Quite honestly, I mean. You know, he's able to do so many different things offensively, defensively, and and from a from a passing standpoint that uh, the, the ball movement with him uh, as he drives, as he as he tries to to slash into the lane and and he, he's looking for other teammates. I mean, that's, I, I don't think we maybe put a value on that because Winston and, and Tillman were so good and I mean it was so cerebral and so precise with their their passing that I don't think that we we put the right value on what Henry meant to that team last year um you know I think you saw it on full display against Duke and you know and that's 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 with him getting more aggressive and taking 21 shots in that game I mean that to me is that was another quiet development you know, just he he had a, a decent scoring game. I think fourteen points, but but the fact that he took twenty one shots is is a big thing because you know they they want him and need him to be a little more aggressive and be a little more of an alpha as a, as a scorer uh, at times. Um, you know, when his when his athleticism allows it. But we've seen a lot of different components of him. We saw we saw him take I think three shots in one game, and but set up the guys around him and. I mean, he is. I, I remember thinking this the first time I saw him play Moneyball a couple of years ago. I mean, he's the ultimate glue guy. Guys rally around him, and he makes guys around him better. And, and I think maybe that might be the thing. We, maybe we just all discounted how much the Aaron Henry factor is to to the rest of his teammates. Oh, and Joey Hauser's pretty good too. There's that as well. You, you make good point. The Henry stuff is. I mean, Henry's willingness and ability to be whatever this team needs, and 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 obviously consistently defensively, he is. That's his ticket in the NBA. I mean, obviously, I think he is. What he else he does makes him an NBA prospect too. But what I mean is, what makes him potentially a starter one day in the NBA, and what NBA teams look at right now and said that separates that guy is his defense. The the ability to in one game, the way the game was going, take three shots, but really affect the game well, and then. And at a stage like Duke, when nothing else is going right and they're out of sorts, be willing to be the go-to guy and attack and wind up with 21 shots. Nobody's ever going to complain about him taking 21 shots because what Aaron Henry doesn't do is take stupid shots, right? This isn't. There might be a day that Rocket Watts takes 21 shots and people go, "Yeah, that was. You know, those were maybe not the best. All those shots." But Aaron Henry, you don't think of Aaron Henry's shots and think that was a bad shot. You think they needed offense and he delivered it. And and between the ears, his confidence, where he is, that headspace is is an incredible development from year to year. I did, I did not know if he had this in him. And, and this is a testament. Here's a guy who could have gone to the NBA and may, you know, may or may not have gotten drafted, probably wouldn't, but would have been, you know, in a, uh, you know, a camp somewhere or the G league and, and might've worked his way to a decent pro career. But by coming back this Aaron Henry, this Aaron Henry is going to get drafted. 
It's going to change his entire pro yeah. trajectory. He becomes a case study in, in patience and making sure you are ready before you actually go. I was going to say, he's also on the bench almost as a de facto assistant coach, too. I mean, and I think Foster Lawyer had a similar thing, um, you know, kind of showing that leadership in that junior group. But, um, uh, you know, I, 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 the, even from a personality standpoint with Henry, I just think that he got overshadowed by those other two guys because, I mean, and, and, and somewhat rightfully so, because Tillman and Winston were, were megawatt people um, as well as, as players and talents. Um, and, and Henry, and there, there was a game last year, I can't remember what it was, but Henry was like, hey, if my guys are going off, I'm, I'm going to just stay stay in the background. And I know that kind of probably rubbed Izzo a little bit the wrong way because he doesn't like guys that do that. Um, but and I, but from a larger picture standpoint, I think he was – Henry was comfortable doing that with Winston and Tillman around. And, you know, it, it, as much as, as we, Graham, in our business, enjoyed and, and found insight anytime we talked to Xavier Tillman and, and – uh, Cassius Winston, I think Aaron Henry always has been this kind of guy too, all the way back to his freshman year where he's, he's able to, to dissect what's going right, what's going wrong and, uh, and, and explain it in a pretty good way. And I think that helps him on the court. Nice cerebral kid. Yeah, absolutely. Very cerebral kid. Very, is uh, always had a great understanding of things, uh, confidence and, um, in, in his own abilities and, and, um, it has been the issue at times, but but he's always understood what was happening around him. Yeah, I, fa- I found his interactions with Izzo and, you know, the way he was, you know, kind of yelling, yelling is not the right word, but, you know, talking to teammates when he was on the bench, uh, I thought, the, to use a grand phrase, it was very telling of maybe some of the maturation and, you know, taking that next step for, for Aaron Henry, for sure. Chris, you mentioned Joey Hauser earlier. Uh, he was, I think, a point short of a double double in the first game, but he's had double doubles in each of the uh, previous, in each of the last two games, Notre Dame and Duke. So it seems very quietly he's just racking up all these rebounds. He doesn't, he doesn't stand out as a flashy rebounder, but he's just kind of out there, <laughs> you know, grabbing all those loose balls, and that's really kind of helping things for the Spartans. Yeah, I mean, positionally, he's in good play, good space. Uh, he's boxes out so well, and he uses his frame. I mean, he, he uses that you know, all that frame, you know, whatever, six, nine of it, uh, to, to get to the rim and, and just kind of pull the ball off as it's coming and, and keeping guys away from him. And, you know, there's, he's really a, a very finesse kind of player in, in so many ways. I mean, I've said this, Graham and I, we talked a little bit about this, uh, on the, on the, 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 the video after the game, um, there's there's some elements to Joey Hauser's game that at times you look at him and you're like, if you put a, a long, you know, 70s shag blonde wig on him, you might think he's Larry Bird. I mean, you know, is he's he, he's got such a well-rounded approach to it. Um, and, and his passing as well, I think, has made the, the, the team around them, uh, him and Henry, elevate their their play i mean that's the reason why you saw 53 assists in 60 games was how well those two uh kept the ball moving i found interesting that you know that first uh what 20 25 minutes of the eastern michigan game hauser really wasn't into the flow of everything uh he looked kind of out of sorts a little bit i thought it might take a couple games for him to 
you know, kind of get into Izzo's system and everything. But then he kind of he hit a couple buckets at the end of the at the end of the Eastern Michigan game. As I said, almost got the double double, and then he's played really well the past two games. I think fouls are maybe the only thing to you know keep an eye on going forward. Uh, he's not the only one who fouls quickly though, so that might just be something for to watch out for when you're watching the bigs on the Spartans roster. Yeah, the thing about Hauser that that's so important too is is you talk about the versatility, his ability to play the four, or the five. Um, and, and and take the ball off the rim, start the break. Just his ability to f- fit anywhere it really is important. When you when you go back to the 2017-18 team, uh, that was his last team that had this much physical talent. Maybe um, you know that team did not fit as well as this team, and I think that is something that w- w- what Henry and Hauser give them is you know be- because that team had just uh, too many traditional bigs, and then that was trying to play you know. Uh, um, bridges on the wing and, and a lot of things about that team didn't, didn't fit great, but with, with Hauser and it, the multiple positions, it allows them to use Malik Hall more. It allows them to use Julius Marble in a game like this more. It allows them to be flexible and, and, and really play to different matchups because he becomes, you're always going to play Joey Hauser and you need to be able to play Malik Hall and then he can play at the four and, he, and depending on the matchups, how you use those two guys. And then, Bingham and, and, and Kithier and, and, you know, Bingham, who's clearly a more traditional five. And one of the things I thought was easy that we learned about in this game, and this is something that's really important for Marcus Bingham as he, you know, he does like to drift and he took his first three and all that stuff is he is really a five. What we saw from Bingham, this is important. He, he, he can't defend a four man who can drive you. He's just not that quick. And I've always known, I mean, you look at his legs, he doesn't have that much muscle in his legs. And because of that, and that's why they put Marble in there as more quick laterally and it was able to work a little better, he's got to be a five defensively. But that's interesting stuff to learn about. I mean, matchup-wise, that's important for him. He's, you know, and, and he's got to know that going forward. He, in the NBA, you know, he's got the, the, the length and some skills to maybe to play at that level, but he's going to have to be a five. And so as he, he works on his body and does other things and, and fits his position, he's a five. And you learn that. Um, but the, the, the flexibility with, Hauser allows you to, in a situation where, and, and, and to have a guy like Marble, who's that ready, who's developed that much. I mean, I, I, I just, I'm, I'm really impressed with how some of these guys have come along who, who in other years have taken two or three years. And all of a sudden this sophomore class, in other words, I think is developed at the rate of speed. It took this junior class two years to develop, if that makes sense. Yeah. And you know, there's obviously uh, going to be a little more opportunities maybe to to it as well. I mean, when you do lose the the guys that they've lost uh, in the last year with Winston and Tillman, I mean, it's you know it, that that helps open things up for Rocket Watch to play the point. That hope opens things up uh, for Marble to come in and and kind of give a little bit more of that physicality that that Xavier Tillman presented. Um, you know, I, I think the Bingham situation is going to be interesting because they've got. Surprisingly, we talk about uh, the depth that they they have. Uh, I mean, you, you've got if Madi Sissoko is, is is going to be a factor this year. Where are those minutes going to come from? Um, you know, Izzo talked about Julius Marble going into the Duke game, uh, saying he needed to play him more, and he hadn't really played him the first two games all that much. Uh, but obviously it was an integral part of the Duke game plan and probably will be going forward. Now you got 10 guys in your rotation without even talking about Sissoko. So I, I, you know, 
where would you, if you're going to, if you're Tom Izzo and you're going to get him minutes and you, I mean, it's, it's going to have to probably come at the, at the, the cost of someone like Bingham or Thomas Kithier right now. Cause I mean, you know, and, and you, you're, you're right about the defensive side. I mean, if, if, if Bingham can only check at a five, right. You know, where's the Soko is, I mean, you know, what, by all accounts, what we've seen, from a scouting report on Sissoko and limited minutes that we basically saw against Eastern Michigan. I mean, he's a shot blocker. He's dynamic. He's got, got some skills. Um, but if he can check that four, now all of a sudden you, do you have something similar to, to what you have with Bingham, but only a little more upside and a little more versatility. I don't know. Um, you know, the, but the, I, I think that, the, the the situation with Hall too is interesting because I think all summer, at least from my perspective, he was a guy that I kept forgetting about. <laughs> I mean, you know, because mostly because he his freshman year he had been so just steady, um, you know, providing minutes and had a, had the I mean he obviously had the the big flash at Seton Hall and he had another big game late, but mostly it was a pretty consistent. Uh, performance in inconsistent minutes, but I think that he has really looked um, so versatile. I mean, that you, you could play him anywhere from three to five, depending on what the matchup is. And I, I, it's going to be wild watching how Izzo figures out how he fits these parts together uh, over the coming months. Yeah, you know, going off what you said a couple seconds ago, Chris, Malik Hall was the last player that we even mentioned in our preseason basketball podcast. I think we were like in the 40, 45 minute. For- 45-minute work for you, like, oh, yeah, Malik Hall, he's on this team, too. Where does he fit in? And, uh, boy, he's he's made quite the mark early, too. Yeah, and, and, it, and it was not by anything that, that he did or couldn't do. It's just it, 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 it's hard without seeing this whole unit together, figuring out where Hall best fits. But quite honestly, where Hall best fits is dependent on who's around him. Um, you know, because of the, the rest of the team's versatility, um, you know, and, and some of the, the question marks in certain positions, you know, with Lawyer and, and Watts, do you run Watts off ball and then do you slide Lankford to the three or do you keep Henry at the three and, and put Lankford on the back? I mean, there's so many other questions that Malik Hall kind of got lost in the shuffle with what he can do. Um, but I, I thought in that Duke game, I mean – I mean, he's had two really solid games against Duke in his career. Um, that's that in and of itself. I think he had nine and eight against Duke the first time uh, he played him last year, and and ten and ten in this game. Uh, he's looked a lot more aggressive offensively. He's he's he's, he's looking comfortable with what his role is going to be at least. And you know that may be an evolving role, but um, depending on who ends up at the five who ends up at the, the, the four. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's going to be Hauser at a four, but I mean, but if, if guys are off the bench, you know, if Gabe Brown's in there, can, you know, how much does Malik Hall add to the athleticism? If you put him at a five or can you put him at a three and put Bingham? In, I mean, there's so many combinations that Izzo can use right now that, I mean, it, that to me, it, that's to me the interesting thing about this team versus some of the others you know, a lot of times he's trying to whittle and play the rotation. I think right now, Graham, he's trying to figure out the best units that he can have and combinations. But I think he feels comfortable with floating a, a lot of different lineups in there. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he's 
um, in, in some ways, I think he knows uh, that it's going to be matchup dependent and night to night dependent a little bit. And, and these guys are going to have to be flexible. It's interesting for for a long time, you would say with this group, especially the big men, like there's not enough separation and, and the, we're sort of waiting for those guys to step forward. And, and now that they all have, it's like the same issue. There's still only so many minutes to have. And I think it will be matchup dependent. He sort of said that it'll be night to night. And, and I think even at the point guard position, how Rocket Watts is playing on a given night. Here, here's the thing. The, the the versatility they have at the point guard position is important because you have to play Rocket Watts. If you listen to Mike Krzyzewski after the Duke game, you know he he's talking about the difference Rocket Watts makes and how that changes them and how, how difficult he is to deal with. And so Rocket Watts, you would love him to come in and play a really good game at point guard. But if he's not, you still got to play him. <laughs> so, like, you've got to right. – the, the, the development with Foster Lawyer was incredibly important in that sense because this was the first time, I'll be honest, that I knew Lawyer could play at this level. We saw him shoot against a – and when I played in this level, I mean top-level, big-time games they're going to be in. We saw him shoot against his zone well against Eastern Michigan. He was okay against Notre Dame, didn't play a lot. This was a game when he fell down once and he didn't even turn it over. This was a game where there was pressure. They got into him. He came in, he was gritty defensively, took two charges initially, three overall. He was he changed the game when he came in. He settled them down because Watts was out of sorts. That was and then he hit an open three. These were huge developments for him and for their ability to trust him in those settings. And then Aaron Henry's ability, and Aaron Henry's still, I would say, a shaky ball handler in terms of point guard level, but he sees the game well. And in tense moments, their ability to play Henry at the point, um, when they don't, you know, when if they don't feel lawyer is the best situation, or they need Watts out there, they want their best five. The reason Henry playing the point is such a, a huge development is that to, your best five players on the court always includes Watts and Henry, and it doesn't always include lawyer. And so, if if you want to put your best five out there, but you're not really sure in the half court that you want Watts running the point in a given matchup or the way things are going. Henry gives you some flexibility there. This team is sort of built to cover each other's weaknesses and and to to, to help each other's, um, you know, it, 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 it's a really a, an interesting mold, and it came together well. And, and, and you know, it's, it's what happens when you find that recruiting sweet spot. When you, because these guys, this is a little bit older team, even though it's sophomores and juniors primarily. Um, there's no freshmen they're really relying on. It's, uh, it's, when you get people in that rank 30th to 100 that are good enough to develop, but not so good that they're only around a year, you get a chance for this. This is not, I mean, this is the problem with the Jaron Jackson. Jaron Jackson, a wonderful player. And like eight blocks in a game. Wonderful player even as a freshman. But, and he almost came back for his sophomore year. But what you would have got out of sophomore Jaron Jackson would have been so much more leaps and bounds. And, and the, right. the advantage of having a second and third year guy is immense. One of the there were a couple things in there that that you mentioned, uh, and, you know, especially with the the development that Henry's kind of got a little bit of of the third guy at the point spot. I, I think there's a fourth guy too that that can handle that, and it, it's Joshua Langford. We we forget that, you know, I, I think back to that game that that lawyer fouled out. It was at the Louisville game two years ago that that lawyer missed the free throw and, and, uh, you know, uh, had issues in that game. Cassius Winston fouled out. I mean, at the end of that game, Joshua Langford was running a point. So yeah. they have another option there. I mean, I think that's, 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 that's critical. I mean, you got another bigger option. You know, you talk about a, a, a 
message uh, a message of versatility i think that's that's one but but lawyer um you know the irony to me it's a dual irony first of all um you know the fact that tom Izzo before that duke game said we're putting rocket watts in for defensive purposes and foster lawyer comes in in the first couple minutes he's in there the two biggest plays he makes uh when they're down 13 to 3 or taking charges on back-to-back Duke possessions. I think that's one part of it. And the other part of it is that he did that in front of Mike Krzyzewski, who basically wrote the book on how to take a charge. Um, I mean, that's, that, that's big stuff right there. I mean, you know, and then he, he, he looks a lot steadier with the ball. Um, I don't know if it's the added weight um, that that's helping him not get pushed off from a, from a defender as much, but, but he looks, he looks more comfortable and, and more physically capable of, of not getting uh, bumped off the play and, and losing control of the ball. He, I thought he looked, and, and maybe this is the, the combination you need to go. And, and, but you're also right. I think you got to juggle this throughout the year, I mean, but, but maybe it's, it's lawyer coming off the bench for 15 minutes and, and Watts playing 25 minutes. Or, or 20 minutes and then interspersing one of those other guys for a couple minutes to give them a breather uh, off the ball. Uh, it, it's going to be fat. I, I still think it's going to be fascinating to see how, how the roles evolve over, over time here. So in a, in a big picture sense here, this was Michigan state's first win over Duke at Cameron in four tries. And I believe this bumped Izzo's record against coach K up to three and 12 all time. But that, but if you want to, Little spin zone. That's two out of three that Izzo has won over Coach K. So that'd be something to watch going forward. And I kind of want to ask you guys, how do we reevaluate this team in terms of you know the national and Big Ten scale? You know they were picked by the in the preseason media poll, picked fourth in the Big Ten. Uh, they started twelfth in the preseason poll, and they were eighth now. I mean, are they are they the number one, number two, number three team in the nation? Do you think? Do you think they've earned that right? And is that how that you think that kind of projects going forward? It'd be interesting. I watched Baylor last night. Uh, Baylor, Illinois. Thursday, Baylor, Illinois. Yeah, and and you know Baylor also has a, a backcourt that can get into you defensively and length and a lot of things going for them that would be. So I don't know that Michigan State's a clear number one or anything, but what I think they are is a team that can win a state or win a state title. Of course, they win a state title, win a national title, um, and I think they they have the ability to dictate matchups. Like I'm very curious in the Big Ten with this backcourt with Iowa and Wisconsin, who everybody's really high on how those backcourts um, deal with Michigan State and, 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 and the athleticism MSU has. I think Illinois is a little different animal. Uh, Illinois, there's something Illinois is missing. It may be just role player shooters. I, I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm watching them, and I'm, I'm like, God, this is a really good team, but I don't – they're missing something a little bit. I, I mean, they're going to be – they're a very good team. They're a contender for sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think Michigan State is in the conversation without question because what they have is they have they – got, they got experience – They've got depth. They've got athleticism. They are kind of a um, a college basketball team of yesteryear in terms of their age and what they what they bring at you. And it's the it's the best team to me athletically that Izzo has had since 2013 14 uh, across the board. And 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 I think they may wind up even be, being better than that. And that team probably should have won a national title. Yeah, Jay Billis had that great line uh, during the game. Said Michigan State kind of looks like a bunch of those bunch of european guys who were older and and showed up at the gym and kind of run you off 
uh, a little bit with with their age, size, and depth. Um, you know, it, I, I, Gonzaga's look good. I mean, you know, the, the their ability to to kind of withstand West Virginia, and, and you know that that next game between Gonzaga and Baylor is going to be a must see TV, um, depending on what's happening on Saturday with with people. Um, you know, one o'clock on a Saturday for number one versus number two in college basketball in the middle of, uh, of when there's football, that's, uh, that's, that's not really an optimal time for, yeah. for a one versus two matchup, but let's, let's reschedule that game TV people. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, you know, but, um, yeah, I think Michigan state's right there, but you know, I mean, it, you know, we're still looking at the same kind of pecking order. I mean, it's, I think one to four in the Big Ten can beat each other on a given night. We saw that last year. I mean, you know, I mean, what, you know, the the, the three teams shared the Big Ten yep. title last year, you know, and you know, they think Wisconsin was knocking on that door too, and you know, you know, or, uh, Wisconsin got a share of the title. Yeah, Wisconsin right? was, was Wisconsin, Maryland, MSU. Yeah, I mean, so Maryland's kind of dropped out, but. But Iowa and Illinois were both right there talent-wise a, a year ago. And, boy, I mean, Luca Garza. I mean, how can you – I know it's you know it's non-conference play and everything, but, but that start that he had, um, I mean, you're talking national players a year kind of thing right out of the gate with, with how good of a game he had. Uh, so, so, yeah, I, I think there's good – I mean, there's – they're as good as those teams around them. Um, and, and it's going to be interesting to watch over the, I mean, you know, you obviously got the one plays that, that are a factor here uh, when they do get to the big 10. And, um, but the, there, there's a lot of talent. I mean, it's, you know, they're differing talent styles between the four schools, um, four teams, but um, you know, I think all four of those programs are up there for a reason. And, um, you know, I think Michigan State's shown, you know, from a Big Ten standpoint and from a national standpoint, they can play with anybody. I, I, I think that, that that's that's going to be what we see. And, and obviously the, the Virginia game next week is going to be another factor, another test to, to kind of show where they're at. Yeah, the, the Hauser versus Hauser matchup. Yeah, that'll that'll be fun. I mean, I, I'm looking forward to, to, to seeing that. I'm what I'm also looking forward to when you get a. I mean, one of the things that if you run with Michigan State, you got they're going to give you trouble. You, you can't zone them. Can you pack line DM? Can you get back and and, and how to, in the half court against Virginia? What what that'll look like? I I look forward. To that. That's just another test that I think is good. And, and you want to you want those matchups because in a uh, one and done tournament world that college basketball is, you know, you may be able to figure somebody out in a seven game series. Um, it's important that you understand what you're facing quickly, uh, and, and I think all that's good for Michigan State. I mean, that, that, that they've already got some zone games under their belt, and then you switch to the, the man that Duke played. Um, you know, it's going to be those, – those are going to be beneficial come tournament time. All right, let's talk a little Michigan State football here. Now this comes with all of the caveats. This discussion, anyway, I mean, comes with all the caveats that you can think of. At this point, we're recording on Thursday morning. The Michigan State-Ohio State football game for Saturday is still on. But there was an interesting note earlier this morning where the state of Ohio issued a travel advisory. I don't know if that is going to affect Ohio State specifically. But 
and there's there's always you know more maybe more Ohio State football players test positive for COVID nineteen between now and Saturday, and the game could still get called. So we will treat this conversation like the game is still going on. So if something happens between now and the time you actually listen to this, please please forgive us for <laughs> for having the gall to <laughs> to talk like this game was going to happen. All right, well, yeah, uh, and, and if things do change, we will we will react accordingly. Yes, exactly. All right, well, I don't need much setup for this game. It's, uh, you know, number four Ohio State is coming to Michigan State on Saturday at the at the present time. Uh, Spartans, of course, coming off the big win over Northwestern, and it'll be interesting to see how Michigan State attacks us. They've got a little confidence, especially on the defensive side of the ball after, you know, after holding Northwestern down last week, and uh, Ohio State's just a different beast altogether. So I guess from what you see, Graham, how does – what is Michigan State's plan of attack against this talented Buckeyes team? And and who knows how many of the Buckeye starters will be out? I mean, if boy, if Justin Fields is one of those guys who who tests positive, it's uh, that changes things completely. Correct. I, I think you know you're looking at probably you know based on the numbers that, that I've heard, you're looking at 18 or more guys who are not going to be playing, and that's a lot. That's a big part of the roster, right? So how many of those guys are starters and key contributors? So let's let's say for argument's sake, we're looking at Percentage-wise, eight of them are starters, right? And if that's – and where are they? And this isn't an Ohio State team that I think is as good defensively as they've been in some years. Offensively, they're pretty pretty potent. But um, So who's missing? I, I think that helps Michigan State that's playing pretty well right now. Um, gives them a, a little bit more of a puncher's chance. And, you know, the, the, for MSU, this is a, a not a horrible time for a barometer game. If the, the Northwestern game hadn't gone as it did, You'd almost root if you're Michigan State for this game to be canceled, um, but but in, in this case, now you, this is where you want to see where you are as a program. Like where do where do you need to, to develop? Where do you need to recruit? Where, you know, this is these are the moments where you really get to see it. Depending on how many guys they're missing, I, I um, I'm so again, I don't know, I don't know what they have to do in terms of uh, you know or what they're going to be looking at. I do know this. They need to. Uh, this is a real interesting game at the line of scrimmage for them. They just had their best game at the line of scrimmage all around, and so this is a little different, different, different animal here. Nobody's expecting them to push Ohio State around, but can they compete with Ohio State? Can they not be overwhelmed? Can they have a few situations where they do get tough yards? Can they protect the quarterback adequately? These, these are these are are big things, and then can their weapons, their receivers. Um, and their defensive backs, which have been terrific uh, of late, um, you know, play at this level. These are important things as you're developing and trying to compete for championships. The the continuity that they they showed um, in in that that Northwestern win, I mean, you want to build off that. I mean, you know, you I I, I understand the 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 thought of you know, boy, if they canceled and got to play someone else, it might be good. But you you also I mean, this this is a game that Mark Van, Mark D'Antonio for 13 years set as a benchmark, and he said, "This is what we aspire to be. This is the the program that we want to be." And that's that's a big reason, you know, you know. Obviously, it started when Jim Tressel was there, and it meant a lot to him personally. But he also understands what Ohio State is, and year in year out, with with their four with their multitude of five star recruits. Uh, Ohio State's just a different beast right now than than even Michigan. I mean, people talk about the the, the years of the the big, you know, the the big two and little eight. 
you know, we're, we're kind of seeing right now just the big one and the other 13, uh, because Ohio state's just at a different pinnacle, um, since urban Meyer and now Ryan day, um, they're recruiting at such a high level. They're playing at such a high level, um, and performing at a high level. So if you want to, if you want to get to that point and, and Mark Antonio did that early on in his career, he pointed to that game and then started beating Ohio state. I mean, probably more than anybody else in urban Meyer's tenure, uh, within the conference, um, you know, that's a litmus test. That's, that's a litmus test nationally for you as much as Michigan is, is the, the rivalry that you, you want to win year in, year out. So um, I think Mel Tucker wants that. Um, I think he needs to see, you know, what he has and, and if it can get to that level right now from Ohio state, but if they don't play that game and, and you, you have to, adjust on the fly. I think the worst thing for Michigan State, let me put it this way, the worst thing for Michigan State is not having a game this week. You had the momentum coming off Northwestern. You want to play someone. Yeah, I, I, I don't think, you, you certainly don't want to play Northwestern again as these games are canceled or anything. And I don't even think you want to play Maryland. You, If you're going to play this week, you want to play, you want to test yourself against Ohio State. To me, it was Ohio State or or nothing, only because if you do have to do another buy, at least there are two games left, right? There's the Penn State and the bonus game. And so you, you, you get another week to work on yourself after a great performance. And, and But I, I agree, you, do, you don't want too many of these buys. And I, there was a year, was it not even the last year, two years ago when Michigan State had a weird year where it was like uh, buy, game, buy. And it's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's, not, it's not ideal. Um, and, and I do think people get excited to play Ohio State. Ohio State's a, a great program, a big brand. Um, you know, the, you know whether this game should be happening or not is, it, is, it, is it a little different discussion. Ohio is, you know, shutting down. You know, is is basically shutting down its state right now. And uh, if you look at the response to the health department, uh, it's noticed on Twitter, and Twitter shouldn't be everything. Uh, it's disgraceful by Ohioans. And there's a part of me that looks at that and says, your football team doesn't deserve to play this week. But that's uh, that's a whole different issue with me. Um, and uh, and. You know, I think this is interesting, though. It is interesting to watch the dynamics of, of, you know, there is a Big Ten championship now this matters to because they have to play enough games. And it's Ohio State. And so they're always, as Chris alluded to, the Big Ten little two, you know, long, long for a long time looked at that way. Um, I Watching how this has played out and the effort to play the game in the middle of a pandemic when there are more important things. I'm not saying people shouldn't play if they can, because it, it's something we all enjoy. Um, but it has what I think have been skewed priorities. It has illuminated those uh, quite a bit. Well, and, and in a 48 hour window um, where you saw Kirk Herbstreet say some pretty ridiculous comments, baseless comments, and then, Desmond Howard followed up with some pretty baseless comments. And then, you know, I, I thought Michigan, when they announced that they canceled the game uh, uh, this week uh, uh, against Maryland, had a very good chance to kind of step forward and, and make a, a statement about the medical aspect of it. And they got dragged back into talking about football and, and records. And this is, this is, I mean, let's, let's put the rivalry stuff aside. I mean, if you're going to talk about the medical aspect of things, if you're going to have to cancel games, um, you know, 
nobody nobody a week ago was calling Ohio State cowards for not playing at Illinois. So right. It, it, so why, why are you? Why all of a sudden is this is this uh, this verbiage and terminology coming up when we're talking about a pandemic and we're we're talking about medical and health reasons of why games are getting canceled and everybody's focusing on the fact that Michigan and Ohio State are supposed to play a, a football game in a week. That's what it comes down to is, is we're focusing on the wrong priorities, man. That's, that's, you know, it, you know, that, and that goes to Ward Manuel talking about taking a quip about, you know, being a winningest program and taking a, sh- trying to take a shot at Ohio state that way. I mean, it's who cares, who cares? I mean, you know, I, I Northwestern right now, um, you know, we, you talked about the shuffling of games. Um, I think it's important for Michigan State to play, and I think that Maryland would probably be a good, you know, you don't want to play Northwestern again, but Northwestern I don't think wants to play from what Adam Rittenberg said because it's finals week. Well, guess what? All these programs, Ohio State and Minnesota and Michigan now, they got finals coming up, and you got kids that are sick going into finals week. I, how That's where you're at. I mean, with a with a a virus that at its at its minimal, um, you know, at its weakest, uh, knocks people down for a couple weeks, pretty hard. I mean, you know, that's that's. I mean, that's and finals week are coming up. Finals week healthier is tough. Um, Let alone being finals week as a student athlete. Then you add that into there. I mean, it's just you know, what are we? Where are our priorities with this? No, and, and you know, the, one of the things that, that's interesting about the dialogue that happened with Herb Street and Ward Manuel and Desmond Howard um, is that when when those conversations come, like all week I've been hearing from people who question whether this game should happen within the Big Ten who would say things like, if, if they're playing, there's shenanigans. Like, there's if you look at, um, you know, you look at all the other teams, they missed two games. Their case numbers were, I believe, about 26 players and staff by Saturday. Like, how does that come down to a point that, you know, and, and, but it's Ohio state, different rules apply. And then you have other people you talk to are like, look, I, I really trust the, the medical people there are the integrity of them. Like, this is going to be, this is going to be on the up and up. The problem with the comments by all these, you know, even Ward Manuel and all these people, when it comes back to football is it makes you, it then takes you to that place where, Maybe it's not. If this is where people's priorities are, if this is their concern, then if that's where, where the dialogue is, because what, what Kirk Curb Street did was he said the quiet part out loud. I thought that was a great uh, tweet by uh, Rainier Saban from uh, The Free about, I mean, he, he, that's what a lot of people are thinking. That's what everybody was been saying. And I'm sure there have been conversations, jokes about it somewhere. No competitor out there, and that's not the way competitors think, doesn't want to play that game. But, you know, that look, the It'd be the ultimate, you know, uh, especially if Harbaugh was done, the way to step off the stage and just keep Ohio State from getting to do what it wanted to do. Sure. That's not really, I don't think, realistically, the way things play out. That said, when all these people, and especially when Ward Manuel gets himself dragged into this and starts talking football in this situation, um, then, you know, because because basically Herbstreit accomplished what I think he did. I, I This is my own theory. I know he, he had a real good apology after uh, an interesting comment. I think he knew what he was doing all along. Because by saying the quiet thing out loud, it now puts pressure on Michigan to play. Because now somebody said, and if they don't, you know, it, and, uh, and, and to try to play. And, and that shouldn't, what happens, uh, it should be completely based on containment of the spread and the health of the program. 
And, um, you know, you look at the positivity rates in Ohio right now, the, the fact that we're playing college football is, is somewhat ridiculous. Um, but these guys can test and they can test daily and they can do it somewhat safely without contributing to the community spread. Then, then, then we've agreed to do that. And, and, and we've all sort of, I don't want to say look the other way, but we've all sort of come to terms with ethically, whatever that's going to be. So to, to steer this back to a football thing, is there a situation here where we maybe see Ohio state looking ahead perhaps, and then Michigan state can, can kind of catch them, catch them off guard a little bit here with so much talk about Michigan this week. I don't think so. Uh, okay. No. Yeah. I, I don't know about to, looking ahead. I, I mean, just wanted to float the theory out there. I think it's going to be dependent on who's available more than, more than looking ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, to me, they, they need to win and they need to win two games and, and they need to win impressively. And, and they're, they're worried about winning impressively. It's actually not, if they're, if all the key guys are around, it's not a good week to face them. And if the key guys are back and the Michigan game happens, it's an especially bad week for Michigan because there will, there will be benefits to them scoring a hundred points. Um, and, and the worst part about this is, you know, I used to say one of the reasons I think they should expand the playoff to allow all conference champions in is until they do that, um, you know, there's, there's no, there's no such thing as bad sportsmanship. If you beat somebody by 140 points, who's a good team, that's all part of getting into the playoff because that's part of the criteria to get into the playoffs. And that's where it's ridiculous. Where if you just had conference champions, you'd say, uh, you know, you win, you're in, you could, you know, you win by two, you win by 40, you're in. But in this situation where they may not get to the conference championship, if they don't have enough games, say the game this week, somehow were, were to get called off last minute and, and, and they were to uh, play next week or, or vice versa. Even if they play this week against Michigan state and they, they're worried about playing next week, um, the conference champion part is even taken out of that was a tiebreaker. One, one thing I really wish the playoff committee would have done was just say, you know, we're, we're not, we understand this is a weird year and we're not going to look at that dynamic is if a team can't play there because of a, a criteria that's based on games played, that is not going to be something that is used as a tiebreaker for, for them, for us, because I think it, it, it puts pressure on these games to happen right now. And these games should only be happening right now if they can be done, if they would be done if it was week two. If this game would be played if it was Minnesota or in week three, then play it. If this game wouldn't, then you don't. And, th- and that needs to be, uh, to me, that that needs to be blunt. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I can't really say much more than that. It's, it's you know, it, it, it's going to be, I mean, if, it, if this makes us to the end, if it makes, I mean, we've seen bowl games canceled left and right. Um, you know, if, if, if there are travel restrictions in place um, and, and teams can't, go places to play quarterfinals, semifinals, whatever it might be. Um, you know, that, you know, and, and you hear people and saying that the worst of things could be December, January, and February. That's right in the middle of all of this. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting. You know, it's, it, it's not going to be interesting. I mean, it's, it's going to be, there may have to be some pretty significant decisions made about this so i mean i guess just kind of stay stay tuned for this because um i know they're pushing they're pushing they're pushing to get all this in but um you know at some point you have to listen to the medical experts and and ask yourself where where football ranks priority wise and all this so um you know who knows who knows um but it's uh it's going to be a 
you know, enjoy it while you can, I guess, is the best way to say it. All right. Well, let's move on to the predictions portion of our podcast, and we'll start with basketball. Basketball has two games coming up. They will host Detroit Mercy on Friday at 5 p.m., and then at the moment they will play Western Michigan on Sunday, but there has been talk of that game possibly getting postponed or canceled due to a COVID-19 issue with the Western Michigan team. So let's start with Detroit Mercy. Uh, I assume we think Michigan State's going to both of these games. I guess the matter is by how much, Graham? Yeah, Detroit does not play a lot of defense. Uh, Anton Davis is a nice player. Uh, I think I think this is a game that, you know, they could have a game where they play sluggish at some point, but I, I think this is a game that's, um, you know, 100 to, to 60 sort of deal. Yeah, I mean, you would think that. I mean, it's obviously going to be a huge game for Detroit having not played Michigan State in, what, 19 years, I think it is, something in that range. Um, talent-wise, there's a disparity, and, you know, but if you're if you're – trying to sneak up on someone after they just beat Duke on the road for the first time. Uh, you know, you, you wonder if that, that letdown factor might come into play, but I don't think so. I think this, I think this is, you know, a 25, 30 point win. I don't think he's over running up all that much. Um, but I think he will try and get as much work for other guys in as he can. Yeah. They have not, they have not played since 2001. And my favorite random fact, Tom is a one of three, one and three all time against Detroit mercy. Pretty pretty crazy stat when you think about it. <laughs> Owen three in games he scheduled too. I mean that game was a, a, not his scheduling in two thousand two thousand one. Yeah, they're not they're not going to lose this game. He will he will uh, he will not let his team lose it. That's for sure. Right. Do you guys have a sense of whether or not the the Western Michigan game will happen on Sunday? I, I don't. That's not uh, Graham. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I, and, 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 uh, Western. Well, hey, wait a second. Wait a second. More importantly, we've got an in-context Western Michigan reference. That's I know. wonderful. Unbelievable. I know. And, and I didn't even reference them until now. It worked so hard. I know. To, they, they didn't You're even cover so the... good. Yeah, I know. They didn't cover the spread against Northern Illinois football last week, so I was a little, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, no, this is a Western team that Michigan State saw play last year that has lost its best two players since. Now, they, they were competitive um, – at Butler, I don't think it's a really good Butler team this year. It surprised me a little bit, but it's not a really overly talented Western Michigan team. It's a weird situation there with their former head assistant coach who took over because uh, they couldn't, after they fired Steve Hawkins, they, they struggled to land somebody quickly and then were trying to keep, keep a hold of these top guys who transferred anyway. And so they hired the interim coach or the, in the pandemic hit and they hired the top assistants, the interim coach. And uh, Thomas Kelly's on that staff, but it's just not. They're not going to be a team that's, that's going to be competitive with Michigan State at all. All right, well, let's move on to the big game on Saturday, and that is Ohio State and Michigan State football. So um, Ohio State is a 24-point favorite. My my initial reaction to that is I think Michigan State can can cover that. I don't think they win the game. I mean, it, it, to stay in the game, I think Rocky, has, Rocky Lombardi, the quarterback, has to be better than 11 or 27 that he was against Northwestern. Graham, what do you, what do you, how do you view the Spartans' chances? Yeah, again, I don't know who's playing there, but the yeah. spread is like twenty-three and a half. And based on not knowing who's playing, I would take Michigan State if it's under, you know, if you know, if you give me more than three touchdowns, just because the way they're playing. That said, you know, um, we've seen things spiral out of control on them too. So, and again, I don't know who they're playing. So, just I'm, I'm going to take Michigan State losing by about twenty-one. Uh, but if, if Ohio State is decimated, that could be closer. If Michigan State plays really well, that could be closer. And I'm also old enough to remember 49-7 at Iowa. So 
<laughs> it's old enough to remember three weeks ago. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it does depend on who's, but I think the other, who's in, who's out, but I think the other factor is, you know, where's Ohio State without a week of practice? I mean, you know, if, you know, let's say that, that those guys are back and, and let's say that some of those guys are starters. You know, they obviously had some time where they didn't practice and, you know, where's the rhythm at? Where's the, I think, I, I think you hit it on the nail. I think that, I think 21 to me is uh, kind of the number. I, I think that, I think that the 24 is a little bit high. Um, I don't know what, what, you know, it's hard to, it's kind of hard to project. I mean, who you going to have a quarterback is, you know, do we know if Justin Fields will be available? Right. I mean, is that, you know, what if Justin Fields, Olave and, and uh, Master T are all out? Right. So, I, you know, but but I think uh, just from a pure talent standpoint, I think 21 points to me is kind of around that point, which would be a cover for for Michigan State. Yeah, and I believe last year's score is 34 to 10. So, I mean, that's 24. That's right at that's right at the uh, the line there in terms of covering or not covering. All right, any final thoughts before we check out of here, guys? I said I hope people get to hear this podcast. I think it was a good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me too. Me too. If you don't hear this podcast, it means a lot of things changed after we did it and we re-recorded it. You're hearing a different podcast. <laughs> exactly. Just just a, a peek behind the curtain. It's not quite noon on Thursday. So <laughs> anything that happens after that is not, it has it just wipe out anything that we've just said. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, after the ad break, we will go to my conversation with Nate Atkins where we talk about Michigan State and how they match up against Ohio State's offense and defense. Thanks, guys. Hey, Spartan fans, the best way to unwind and chill out during these busy go, go, go days is to reach for the one beer that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. It's important to relax these days, so crack open a mountain cold Coors Light and chill out. Now that we're getting toward the critical part of the college football season, it's important to make sure your refrigerator is stocked with cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged Coors Light. In fact, the mountains on the can will turn blue when chilled to perfection, so when you want to hit the reset button, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Coors Light. You can even have Coors Light delivered by going to get.coorslight.com. As the games get hotter and hotter, reach for the one beer that's made to chill. Coors Light. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company. Golden, Colorado. Okay, I am joined by Nate Atkins of the Lansing State Journal, and we're going to break down a little film, and specifically we are going to talk about Michigan State's offense and offensive line and running backs and what they were able to do against Northwestern, things that we had not seen done at all in any point by them this year in previous games. And we're going to try to take all that and figure out how that's going to work against Ohio State. Nate, how are you doing this afternoon? Doing well. You know, still trying to figure out what all is going on. Uh, yeah. I, 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 State, I, I, I think it's more likely than not we have a game. Just such weird times where you go from Michigan State not having a game to pulling a top 10 upset to now we're back to not knowing if they'll have a game against another top 10 team. And then trying to break down that battle with a top 10 team that has played one time in three weeks. And we don't know which players from that top 10 team are the more than 10 who are out with COVID right now. Because the weird thing is in the Big Ten, they have the rule. If you, if you test positive, you're out three weeks. So Ohio State's going to be without guys. We just don't know who they are. And it makes it, uh, let's say, a little bit challenging to, to go too in-depth on that team. So I just figured we'd go a little bit more in depth on Michigan state, the run game, all the stuff that you guys 
probably care a little bit more about than whether Ohio State will win by 17 or 24 or 28. It'll be wild if Justin Fields is one of the guys out. But, I mean, you just, you just look at the numbers game. It's certain, there's certainly going to be a couple probably important pieces for Ohio State that will not be playing Saturday. We just, of course, like you said, don't know who that's going to be. Yeah, and Justin Fields is the one where if he's out, that changes the game. I mean, if they're facing a, a quarterback in his first ever start, the way they're playing on defense, you know, that, that's where it gets into a territory of you never know. Let's wait and see. If Justin Fields plays this game, and if he is at least one of just or of, uh, Chris Olave or Garrett Wilson, I, I just don't think this is a game Michigan State can hang in. It's not like Northwestern where athletically they were similar enough to stay within a game and, and kind of pull an upset. But, you know, that's what we have to – the door's at least cracked that there is a chance that they could be without a guy that really dramatically changes the entire outlook. Okay, so let's talk about the Michigan State running game. We saw them run for 195 yards against Northwestern on Saturday on 47 carries for a 4.1 yards per carry average. And those are numbers that we have not seen in any game this year from this run attack. The running backs look good running the ball. The offensive line was, I'm going to say inexplicably, getting great push off the ball against this was a Northwestern team that was a top 10 defense in both points scored and total defense. And... Michigan State just did things that no one had done to Northwestern all year. I mean, from your perspective, what what was the one or two things that really stood out, what they did differently that they somehow found success on? To me, it was a combination of two things. It was individual players getting just a good step better, better at what they've already been asked to do, and then it was just a great game plan of how to attack this Northwestern defense. So if you watch Northwestern in recent weeks, I mean, they've obviously been a great defense or top 10 team because of that defense. But the one play that had consistently gotten them was the quarterback draw. And Pat Fitzgerald just went nuts after the game saying, you know, I knew it was going to bite us. And today it did. And it was smart of Michigan state to attack with that. And it was interesting that they did it with Rocky Lombardi because we, we brought this up when we were talking about Peyton Thorne is that there are a couple of times when Peyton Thorne was doing that draw, we know he's mobile, but Indiana knew he was running the ball. You know, he's just not a guy who goes down the field. Rocky Lombardi at least has that kind of uh, attacking nature to go down the field. He has the arm strength to do it. He hit that long fade to Jalen Naylor. And I felt like that fade early in the game opened up all these kind of possibilities where against the Northwestern defense that had two high safeties, you know, for them to play that deep ball, there's going to be some opportunities for a quarterback draw. So Rocky Lombardi, 10 carries, 65 yards. And that's the kind of element that just really adds to this run game. If you look at the, the backs, Connor Hayward and, and Elijah Collins, since they were without Jordan Simmons, you know, they averaged three and a half yards a carry, which is, you know, you can play with. It's not great, but you combine that with what Lombardi did, you now have sort of a three-headed rushing attack. And it's sort of like a situation where the the individual parts become, or I should say the sum becomes bigger than the individual parts. No one of those three was going to have this just amazing game against Northwestern, but you keep mixing them in, you combine them together with the, the zone reads and the way they set up each other. And they just kind of had a really smart attack for, uh, for specific to this defense. And then obviously, like I said, they, it's a mix of the backs were hitting the hole better. Lombardi was being decisive when he was pulling the ball down. Just, it was just a cleaner game than we've ever seen them run. I was just floored how much success Michigan State had running the draw with, with Rocky. 
and that's an element we really hadn't seen that much. And then Northwestern also did not make any adjustments for it. They really stuck with that two high safety plan, not get beat over the top. And maybe they just figured their players would eventually make plays against that draw. And we never saw that, especially on Michigan State's last drive when Rocky had that big long run. I believe it was a third down play that kept the drive going and ended up eating more time off the clock. And by the time Northwestern got the ball, there was what, 18 seconds left, and they were like inside the 20 or something like that. So everything just really came out Michigan State in Michigan State's favor in that. Yeah, and I really credit Jay Johnson for some of those draw plays because I think, I mean, Northwestern's not unaware that they were struggling against that, but they were putting a lot on their linebackers who were very good. And what Michigan State was doing was they were kind of figuring out when they would be in man coverage, spreading out the wide receivers, sending the back out of the backfield, and pretty much making those linebackers cover in man. And when you do that, you move these guys off certain targets where they're having to follow your targets. And also, they don't have the eyes on the quarterback. And so we just kind of had a smart plan where they would do that. They'd open up the middle of the field, and then they'd have a guard, usually J.D. Duplain, who would just kind of be a lead blocker for Rocky Lombardi and just get as many yards as you can. And that was part of it, too. I thought the interior of the line had by far the best day they've had all season. And on this podcast, we've been a little bit hard on that group. And especially the guards, I think they've had a tough year. But uh, J.D. Duplain especially, I thought, had his best day. But to be fair, that criticism has been deserved. We we have not been wrong in our analysis of the offensive line. Yeah, for sure. And that's what I'm saying. I was blown away by how much better they were. Um, Just in terms of... You know, it's not like they got so much bigger and stronger after, you know, two weeks of not playing, but they just seem to get things down more. They seem to get the combo blocks. The, uh, You know, Nick Samak, it's tough when you have a new center step in week two and you're trying to build these combo blocks in a new scheme that none of them are used to. But it felt like that gap of not having the Maryland game, just getting that extra practice, they practiced that Saturday. So pretty much you got to replace a game where you're scouting for specific plays to here's a practice where we just focus on our plays. And I felt like that made a big difference as far as getting some of the combo blocks down. And some guys are just playing a little more confidence. Nick Samak's one of those where he's not overly, uh, you know, physically dominating at the point of attack, but he's getting to his spots a little bit quicker and he's turning guys around. And, um, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing. It wasn't, like I said, it wasn't overwhelming. They, when they ran up the middle, it was just kind of serviceable. But serviceable is a lot better than non-existent, especially when you're trying to keep Rocky Lombardi out of third and ten. When you get him to third and six, it's a much more manageable situation. Yeah, it, it's crazy how their blocking just got better. Like It was a wholly different uh, success factor in the blocking scheme in two weeks. I mean, what do you have to do in those two weeks to turn it in from – from what looks to be pretty awful to something that's really good. It can't just be, oh, we know our combo blocks now. How do you how do you how do you get that kind of turnaround in two weeks? Yeah, I think it's it's a little bit of they were a little sharper at what they're doing with combo blocks. It's also I thought Northwestern actually kind of made it easy on them. It's almost like they thought they like overlooked that group and they thought we'll just put out a four man front and these four guys will yep. win all the time because others have. And it just didn't happen that way. And I just thought, you know, at Indiana, Indiana didn't play it that way. They always sent a blitz after them. And when you kind of get an offensive line who's not quite sure where the pressure's coming from, that gets in their heads a little bit. There just was nothing Northwestern was doing that was rattling this group at all. I mean, they just were they just were coming off the ball, and they, thought, they just thought their four guys would win, and they didn't win. And it's one of those where you have one big successful drive, like the Jalen Naylor touchdown. Yep. You get a lead in that game. 
this offensive line starts feeling something. Like for the first time in a long time, they've got a lead because of how they're playing, and they realize it's on us to kind of protect this lead and put the game away. And I just there's just little elements of confidence that added in with you know better technique and and like I said, some good play calls to make their matchups reasonable. When you're blocking five on four, and if you can get in tandem. I mean, you should be able to hold your own like that, and that's what they did. Yeah, I mean, that Rocky Lombardi pass to Jalen there was probably the play of the game, to be honest with you. That really set everything in motion. That what We talked about Northwestern not changing his defense, not coming out of its two deep safeties, specifically because of that reason and what they did, how this, like Michigan State had so much success with that earlier in the season against Michigan. It was overall, you know, Rocky was great on the QB draws and running the ball, but just a confounding day passing. You know, he was uh, two of eight at one point for two touchdowns uh and he finished 11 of 27 for 167 yards and two touchdowns and an interception now i don't think that type of passing performance is sustainable going forward especially against ohio state this weekend but uh i guess maybe cut down on the incompletions a little bit by maybe six or seven and you know get that get that running game you know keep keep that keep his legs going there and maybe maybe they've got a functional quarterback there yeah, I mean, it. when you go back and you think through how that game went, I mean, it was kind of fluky on offense for Michigan State. It was a lot of either a big fade route or it was a quarterback draw. And to their credit, I mean, those are two married concepts. You start getting teams to back way off and play the deep ball. There's more room in the middle of the field. You know, I'll give a little bit of – I'll toot our horn a little bit because we had said this is what would give them pause with the quarterback decision. I think we both predicted it incorrectly. I think we thought yep. – Thorne would get the start. What we said was they were going to have a real problem with you're basically giving up that deep ball to Jalen Naylor if you don't start Rocky Lombardi. And obviously they love it. That's why it was in the scripted game plan. It was a huge part of this game just to get this team feeling like they're in a game. But, yeah, I think this matchup also fit because you're able to score 23 points against Northwestern and have a chance to win. You can't beat Ohio State with 23 points. Yeah. It's just not going to work that way. So this was a better matchup for them. It was a, a prime opportunity because I think their defense is playing lights out right now. I thought it did against Indiana and just got covered up by by some of the short fields. But, uh, you know, their defense, if Justin Fields is out, then it's a different conversation and maybe there's an opportunity to try for something like that. But um, Ohio State – they score like 50 points in, in like half of Ryan Day's games as a head coach, although he's not going to be there, so maybe that's different too. But <laughs> no, I think it's a different matchup for sure. Well, you are already kind of going there, so let's switch to the defensive side of the ball here. And, you know, Michigan State w- was pretty good, pretty dang good against Northwestern and Peyton Ramsey this past weekend. Uh, Peyton Ramsey never really got going passing or running game-wise, and that's kind of a credit to what Scott Hazleton and his defense did and making adjustments and maybe seeing some things in, in certain other games they played this year. I mean, they only did only score 17 points against Wisconsin, so they may have seen some things in Wisconsin that Wisconsin did that they liked, but Ohio State, of course, as you alluded to, is a completely different animal altogether. Can they get away with sticking in that four-two-five and and having success, or what kind of things do you think the defense will have to do to, to try to stay up with the Buckeyes? Yeah, I think the four two five is their best chance yeah. to do anything in this. I mean, Xavier Henderson talked about this this week where he said, you know, we're built to stop the pass. And it was kind of embarrassing when they wouldn't because they feel like that's how the defense is built. And he is the the best player in that back end, you know, takes a, a level of pride with that. And, um, you know, and certain guys are growing in that area. And Angelo, Angelo Gross has looked really good for a freshman, you know, in a year when I didn't think 
was really built for freshmen to to contribute and um, if they're able to get some of their more their guys back again this is where it's a fluid situation but if you're able to have Kalen Gervin out there again and Trey Person and this group is really Chris coming Jackson. on better Chris Jackson yep this group's coming on better at the same time I mean Peyton Ramsey's a good quarterback but that passing attack that is not a an explosive 90 yards on a play type passing attack like they're going to see this weekend if these guys are out there, if, if Justin Fields and Chris Olave and, and Garrett Wilson are out there. Because what Ohio State's doing right now is, uh, is they're taking – it's all about those two wide receivers. They go for like 100 yards each a game pretty much. And they are moving Garrett Wilson, who's the this five-star sophomore receiver, they're moving him into the slot. And so they're challenging guys who just don't know how to handle that. Like, you know, like Angela Gross. He's made some nice plays, looking good for a freshman. He is not ready to cover Garrett Wilson out of the slot. I mean, almost nobody in the conference is. So it's it's just one of those matchups that's there's just it's, it's like where it gets kind of boring to analyze this part of it because there's not really an answer to it. I mean, I don't think there's any way they can defend that if those guys are healthy and out on the field. Um, like I said, the Indiana's best shot was trying to outscore that at a high high clip. That game ended up being. Was that 42-35 and yeah, Michael Penix so. threw for 500 yards? Yep. <laughs> that was the recipe to try and do it. Um, I will say the one thing that Michigan State can do better than Indiana did in that game, Indiana got run all over. And I don't think an Antoine Simmons defense is going to get run over the same way, especially with the way he was tracking and filling. And one thing that's helping Michigan State right now, I, I've been tooting his horn all season, but Michael Fletcher is a – that's a real body out there, and especially setting the edge. And I mean, they've they've discovered something there that has taken away the edges and kind of worked. It's kind of funneled run games back into the middle of their defense, which is where Antoine Simmons is, is which which is where they're strong, which is where Naquan Jones can make some plays. So I think there's some things they can do against the running attack, but it's all about can you make that running attack matter? And to do that, you have to challenge the Ohio State passing attack somehow. Yeah. And I just don't know. Well, you, well, you mentioned Simmons. Obviously, he was the Big Ten Defensive Player of the Week this past weekend, and Noah Harvey was great against Northwestern as well on Saturday. But I think this is this is a different challenge altogether. They're gonna they might have to expand beyond their normal responsibilities as the, the two linebackers there in the four two five to try to slow down what the Buckeyes do. Yeah, one thing I will mention though is Antoine Simmons at one point was committed to Ohio State, and then he decommitted when Ohio State had. Uh, two of the guys currently on the roster who are starting at linebacker, when those two guys, one of them took a visit and one of them uh, committed to the team and Tough Borland and Pete Warner. So there's kind of a personal element going on here for Antoine Simmons, and that's a guy who runs on fire anyway. So I could tell you one guy who's going to really come out strong this week is him. Um, I, I do think it will make a difference in the run game. I think Ohio State will get back to some struggles there. The problem is, Getting Ohio State in a third and nine doesn't really work as an advantage to you unless you can get some kind of a pass rush. And this is where they're going to have to to figure out some blitzes because I don't I just don't think their their ends are good enough to win against those tackles either. Yeah, I mean, Michigan State's going to need some of that and just maybe some just general rustiness from Ohio State because they haven't because they haven't just play, haven't played as much as Michigan State, to be to be quite honest. And we it'll be and we don't know who the players that will be out yet. So. Yeah, it's all, and it's a possibility because one thing we got to keep in mind here is Ryan Day is not going to coach this game, and he yep. is the offensive play caller. And 
that's been the comfort level for Justin Fields. It's a big reason why this passing attack is so high octane. Now, Kevin Wilson is a very capable play caller too, but it's, you know, there's a little bit of change there. And especially if, if some of those pieces then are out, if they're without one of those receivers, if they're without a tight end, if they're just little things like that can creep into it. If Michigan state can play on a high level and force some of these things, I mean, Justin Fields is one of the best players, if not the best player in college football, but he's not perfect. And we saw against Indiana. I mean, he was forcing up some balls because I think he was just surprised that someone actually defended some things and thought, well, I'll just, I'll just throw through it anyway. If you can get him to play like that again, I mean, we've seen Michigan State make plays on the ball recently. We've seen Shakir Brown make quarterbacks pay who just want to force a ball in the end zone. So I think there's some plays Michigan State can make on defense. You're just going to give up a lot of points, and I don't really see how their offense can keep up with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, think the best you can hope for is to yeah to get some rustiness between the, the play callers and the team that hasn't played in a while, stop the run, force a turnover or two, and 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 see if you can keep this from being too high scoring. And and but in the not too distant past, you know the the halcyon days of the Mark D'Antonio era, you know Michigan State really mucked mucked things up defensively and ruined <laughs> ruined some great Ohio State teams this season, especially you know twenty fifteen comes to mind. I think twenty thirteen, I think that happened as well so i mean it's not without the realm of possibility however there's also more recent history where it was that uh three years ago when ohio state was up like 48 to 3 or something like that or like 35 to 3 at the half or something like that so it'll be interesting to, yeah. interesting to see well what i happens. think back to last year's game i mean i was there in columbus and i thought michigan state played great in that game i mean they held that was the first time a ryan day offense had not scored a touchdown in the first quarter that was the first time they that was the lowest points they had scored since he became the head coach um, they, you know, they were getting fourth down stops, but you know, it just didn't end up, they lost 34 to 10 in that game. Yep. And that was one of the problems is it's like, there's just such a talent gap right now that, you know, these different elements that used to work a little bit better in close games, the, the high intensity of Ohio kids have been overlooked or the Antoine Simmons who was committed there and decommitted. And these only matter a lot when you can stay within a certain range and in, in score. So Yes, though, I do think it can play into it if, if some of the things we've talked about come into play. If they're without one of those receivers, say they're without Garrett Wilson this week and you can just double Chris Olave and say, go to anybody but him, you know, that's a different game because Ohio State hasn't had to play that way all year. They always have those two receivers that are too much to handle. So, you know, there's a door crack that if, if the COVID concerns play into some of the personnel absences in addition to Ryan Day not being there, who knows? But I just think until we see who's out there, uh, the safe money is going to kind of bet that that they're just not built to keep up in a shootout like this. Yeah. So, well, let's just segue that into our Big Ten picks this week. And up first is the game we've just spent a bunch of time talking about, Ohio State at Michigan State. Nate, I have an idea well, where you're leaning. Yeah. <laughs> just make it official. <laughs> yeah, I'll make it official. I'll let you go out on that ledge if you want to get okay. a leg up in this picks competition <laughs> that I believe is very tight, even though we took last week off. Um, I think we're, we were tied going to last. We week, were tied right? going into two weeks ago, and then we did not record last week, and we did not because we, we failed as human beings. Uh, we did not make picks last week, so we will just have to yeah. not include uh, last week's action in our picks for the season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was rough, but yeah, I'm going to go with Ohio State. I just I don't I I don't think they can lose a game like this. Yeah, I'm just kind of with you on that, Nate. It's going to take a Herculean performance 
from Michigan State's defense to stay in the game. And I just don't think the offense, Michigan State's offense has enough firepower to continue scoring the amount of points that they're going to need to win that game. All right, Nebraska at Purdue. Man, these two teams are both reeling right now, aren't they? Um, yeah, Purdue even Purdue got Purdue even got round, yeah they even got rounded more back, but still lost to Rutgers. Yeah, you know, and, and Nebraska's lost to Illinois. Jeez, I don't. This is a hard one to pick. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say Purdue. I'm gonna say they just have a little bit more of an identity with with David Bell and Rondell Moore. I don't know what Nebraska's good at other than quarterback runs. So maybe they can play Northwestern decently well, but until they show they can actually do more. Um, I, I just think any team with an identity is going to have their way against them. Yeah, I mean, Purdue's had a couple of tight losses. They got robbed of the Minnesota game with that absurd they, offensive they pass interference robbed. call, and then they barely, Rutgers had to. Rutgers did come from behind. I believe they were, down, they were down two scores. They came back and beat Purdue. So I think Purdue will, 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 will figure it out and win this one. Penn State at Rutgers. Man, these games are just getting hard to pick. Uh, this is, <laughs> never thought this, this would be what, a hard one. This is why they pay us the big bucks. This is why the people listen to us. They want, we're here to provide the insight. I keep wanting to write Rutgers off, and they keep just scrapping and finding yep. a way to either be in the game at the end or to win it. Um, I'm going to go with Rutgers in this game. I mean, why not? They they almost beat Michigan in three overtimes. Who just, you know, Penn State was able to beat last weekend, but you know, Rutgers is just they 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 are so much more in love with this season than Penn State is, and sometimes right now that seems to be having an effect. I'm going to have Rutgers pulling out just a crazy wild game. Yeah, Penn State is a 10-point favorite, which is sounds absolutely crazy to me. And that's just people, yeah. that's just Penn State fans uh, betting that side. Although, having said that, I do I think Penn State will win this game. I think they may have maybe found something. Maybe they're going to right the ship here a little bit. It's going to be close. It's not going to be 10 points, but I do think Penn State will win this game. All right, Indiana at Wisconsin. Why are we different on a game for yeah. once? Indiana at Wisconsin. Yeah, I'm going with Wisconsin. Uh, Michael Penix is out, unfortunately. It's terrible for the Hoosiers, but you know that was that's kind of the heart and soul. Their offense is him chucking it up to those two receivers, and I just don't think it's the same thing without that. And, and Wisconsin had a blip on the radar against Northwestern, but they've had. Um, I, I think they are ready to kick back into gear a little bit. And at home, I've got the Badgers. Yeah, they're just another team that's been. They've only played three games. I mean. Just a little rust after a hot start to the season and lost to Northwestern. I also think Wisconsin is going to win. Uh, I don't know anything about Indiana's backups, um, I, and I, I'm going to suspect they're not as good as Michael Penix and what he brings to that offense. So I just think even if Michigan, Indiana can find some things, it's not going to be against Wisconsin. All right, last game, Iowa at Illinois. I'm going with Iowa. They are really rolling right now. I mean, they just seem to unlock something in, in uh, especially that run game. No, Iowa's a weird team. So they just sometimes get bored of doing what they're doing, so they go back to putting everything on Petrus, and it that's when games get unnecessarily yeah, tight. I uh, so. I had a decent amount of – I had Iowa uh, in three different bets, three different parlay bets, uh, one to win up right, one to win straight up, one to win by minus four, and one to win by minus seven. And uh, obviously the minus seven one did not pan out, but they should have put Nebraska away. Pretty quickly, oh, yeah. and they let Nebraska linger. They had that missed Iowa had that missed field goal at the very end, and then Nebraska had a had a chance to try to steal the game at the very end. But uh, yeah, so well, I my, yes. my theory on that is I think Kirk Ferentz wanted to really run up the score on Nebraska and got a little bit too greedy. Um, there's been some interesting shenanigans there where uh, Scott Frost was complaining about the Iowa players clapping, and Kirk Ferentz got really annoyed with that. And I just think he wanted to really stomp on him. He just didn't have the quarterback to do it. But this week, I don't. I mean, Illinois doesn't anger people <laughs> nearly the same way. I think they'll 
they'll play it simple and be like, look, if we run our game, we'll beat Illinois, and I think that's what they'll do. <laughs> I'm taking Iowa. I like this Iowa team quite a bit. Uh, I think they're fun to watch. And All right, Nate. Well, thank you very much, as always, for joining me this week on Spartan Speak. Yeah, for sure. Now it's, it was fun to do, and let's hope they get a game in this weekend, and it's safe, and uh, you know we can just get this season kind of finished. It's been a little bit of a rocky road. All right, thank you for joining us for this edition of Spartan Speak, a production of the Lansing State Journal, Detroit Free Press, and the USA Today Network. If you enjoy this podcast and the work surrounding it, please consider subscribing. You can follow our coverage at lsj.com, freep.com, and on Twitter, at Graham underscore couch, at Chris Solari, at Nate Atkins underscore, at Phil underscore friend, and LSJ Green White. Thanks for listening. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.